If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available for you to binge for free right now on Spotify. A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. Yeah, we went down to Texas for a quick quick shot, and then I leave again. Next week we're like in Louisville, and then the Midwest, and then we got a pretty stiff schedule. This is Dave Sabo. He goes by Snake. He's 55 years old, and for the last three decades, he's been playing guitar for the metal band Skid Row. Snake's had a wild life. We're doing over 100 shows a year. You still having fun with it? I do. Yeah. I'd be hard-pressed to do it if I wasn't. Uh, it would be... It would be tough to get me out there, yeah. you know? These days, Snake has settled down a little. He's married with kids in a nice house on Long Island. He's fit, with tattooed arms and dirty blonde hair down to his shoulders. He suggests we meet at a pretty little park in the town of Amityville. There's a swing set and a bunch of ducks waddling around. But otherwise, we've got the place to ourselves. Which is good, because I want to ask Snake about a trip he took to Moscow in 1989. Snake grew up in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and originally he thought he was going to be a baseball player. It just absolutely knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then up the street, John's playing music and he's playing guitar. And I'm like, well, I want to do that too. So he would show me a couple chords here and there. And then that just set me on the path. John was his best friend, a local kid with killer hair and rock star aspirations named John Bon Jovi. John was very, very successful at that point. And we were best friends. He was always like, man, you put a great band together and I'll help you in any way I can. Bon Jovi eventually got a big deal manager, a guy named Doc McGee. John calls me up and says, you gotta come out to my parents' house, meet my manager. This guy, Doc McGee, I'm like, no way. I know who that guy is. Manages Motley Crue. Motley Crue, one of the biggest metal bands on the planet. Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, Vince Neil, Girls, Girls, Girls. You don't even have a band at this point. No, yeah. I'm 19. Yeah. So classic story, we're all hanging out in the backyard, grilling, having a cookout. Doc is relaxing on the lounge chair. Picture a 1980s rock manager, and the image in your mind is probably roughly what Doc looked like. He was short and plump and swarthy, with thinning, slick black hair and a colossal ego. And it was the 80s, so he wore blazers with the sleeves rolled up. Everybody happened to go inside for whatever reason. I said, this is my moment. So I spent the next 10 minutes, probably felt like 10 hours to him, explaining to I'm the world's greatest guitar player, I'm gonna be a huge star, this and that, and just bloviating. And he was kind enough to indulge me. And finally, I'm done, and he just looks at me and he goes, that's great, you wanna get me a beer? Oh, no. <laughs> True story. It took three years, but Snake put together a band with the right lineup. They had a preening frontman with bleach blonde locks who went by Sebastian Bach, and Doc McGee agreed to take them on, ushering them into the racy, big time, slightly mysterious world that he occupied. Snake was about to take part in one of the strangest chapters in the end of the Cold War. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. I'm Patrick Radden Keefe. Episode 5 I Follow the Moskva. One weird wrinkle of this mystery 
of whether the song Wind of Change could have been secretly written by the CIA is that the song actually has a very well-established origin story. There's already an account of how this song was created, and it's very detailed and specific. But when you really examine that story, it's also a little bizarre, even improbable. So in this episode, we're going to look at the official story of how Wind of Change came to be, a story that the Scorpions and the fans and the music press have been telling and retelling for decades. It hinges on an unlikely rock festival in the USSR, a festival that was the brainchild of Snake Sabo's new manager, Doc McGee. Doc didn't just represent Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and now Skid Row. As it happened, he was the manager for the Scorpions, too. In 1989, Doc told Snake that he wanted to put on a rock festival in Moscow. Did it seem, did it seem like normal to you? No, it seemed way out there, but it was the end of the Cold War. It would be like Woodstock, Doc said, but with metal bands and in Russia. And it was an opportunity to bring Western culture there and promote unity on this massive global scale. Doc hooked up with a Russian musician named Staz Naman. Naman was the grandson of a legendary Bolshevik who'd been an important political figure with a career that spanned the Lenin, Stalin, and Khrushchev eras. But he was also a bit of a rebel, so he was the perfect partner for Doc McGee. Staz loved rock music, and in a country where it could be really hard to get stuff done, he had all the right connections. When Doc went to Moscow, Staz would pick him up, and they would zoom into town, bypassing the traffic on a special lane for VIPs. Today, Staz runs a theater in Moscow's Gorky Park. It's not just theater. It's a center. It's a cultural center. I don't know. We have different things here. He's got a beatnik ponytail, and when I went to see him recently, he walked me down a long corridor lined with memorabilia from his career. There are pictures of Keith Richards and Peter Gabriel and Frank Zappa, and yes, the Scorpions. So it's all the bands, actually, we put together with Doc McGee. Yeah. He was helping me from the other side, uh-huh. and I was doing everything from Russian side. So we join our forces. Doc came to Russia to meet with Stas in 1988, and they talked about this idea of a rock festival, which was totally unprecedented in Moscow. It was communist time, no one festival, everything almost underground. So just to be so dare to go to the Lenin Stadium, I mean, it's like... <laughs> One thing everybody will tell you about Doc McGee is that he thought big. This idea developed to bring a bunch of bands to Moscow and have them play a two-day festival in a vast sports arena on the banks of the Moskva called Lenin Stadium. They would call the concert the Moscow Music Peace Festival. And the purpose, bear with me here, but the ostensible purpose would be to encourage kids to say no to drugs. Doc's organization was Make a Difference Foundation. The Make a Difference Foundation. None of the bands would be paid for the concert, and the proceeds would go to this foundation that was set up, and I'm quoting, to combat drug and alcohol use among the youth via a pro-responsibility message. Of course, the bands that Doc rounded up, Skid Row, Motley Crue, Cinderella, Ozzy Osbourne, were not what you would call paragons of sobriety. Motley Crue sent out a Christmas card once in which they were all posing for the camera with straws sticking out of their nostrils around a giant mirror on which the word crew had been spelled out in cocaine. This irony was not lost on the bands themselves. It was Make a Difference Foundation. We were going to make a drink foundation, you know what I mean? So That's Zach Wilde, Ozzy's guitarist. What's going on, man? How are you? What is shaking? These days, Zach plays in a Black Sabbath cover band called 
Zach Sabbath. And the way it was explained to Zach, the festival was set up with good intentions. I guess it was going to, to help, you know, drug rehabs and alcohol rehab, you know, like just, uh, just a rehab foundation thing that Doc set up. He describes the whole experience as kind of surreal. A lot of people who went to the festival talk about it that way. Well, so I started at MTV in 1984, and one of the cornerstones of what we did at MTV was a series of promotions. This is Carol Robinson and her friend Pete Danielson. They used to work at MTV, back when MTV felt like the biggest thing in the world. Do you know anything about the contest no. that we used to do? So we used to put winners in situations with bands that were kind of spectacular that you could only win at MTV. Well, my first one that I went on was One Night Stand one with night you stand. two. Yeah. Five contest winners, five Learjets. Mm-hmm. We flew to Red Rocks Stadium. We saw the band. We had a party with the band afterwards. Mm-hmm. After U2, Pete and Carol took fans to Jamaica with Bon Jovi. We went down to Hedonism in Jamaica. They took over a hotel in Wyoming with Prince. Prince performed a concert in the Holiday Inn. They even hit up the Middle East with Tom Petty and Bob Dylan. We toured pyramids on a camel. It was amazing. Then in the summer of 89, Pete and Carol learned that Doc McGee was putting together a concert in the Soviet Union. He was like a power manager. Yeah, he was a force of nature. He just really understood how to use MTV and television to the benefit of his bands. And to open the Russia market to these artists. Russia was changing. It seemed to be opening up, and MTV wanted in. Doc had already made a pay-per-view deal for the concert, but MTV would hold a contest and send a few lucky winners to Moscow. And then all of a sudden we were organizing and figuring out how to get everybody over there. And then Doc solved the problem with the plane. In order to get his bands into Russia, Doc McGee procured an airplane. The idea of, of getting on a plane with all these people, like that in and of itself, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, who's the crazy maniac that came up with this genius idea? This is Snake Sabo again. It was like a charter plane? Yeah, it was like a giant 747 or whatever. Wow. Oh, yeah. Because MTV was on board, the cameras were rolling on the flight. We have three selection of meal entrees, which consists of beef wellington, poached salmon, and chicken viennese. And this is, so it's you guys, it's crew, it's journalists. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's the whole bit, man. Yeah. You know, of course, MTV's traveling with you, and they're trying to interview everybody. We're rocking, man. I mean, you got the crew, you got Ozzy, Bon Jovi, Scorpions are here, that's 24-year-old Snake on the plane. I mean, man, what more could you want? This is a show. I mean, no, it was just, <laughs> it was just a massive drunk tank. Zach Wilde had known Snake growing up, and they sat together. All right, that bang is off to T.U.'s. We are on the magic bus. I don't know. It's, we're starting to get rowdy at this point. Yeah, man, we're starting to get rowdy. You know, of course, the plane, oh, the my plane. God. Almost everyone was, like, completely drunk. The entire time. So, you know, we're going to do this anti-drug peace festival and the amount of alcohol. Ozzy Osbourne, the former Black Sabbath frontman, was sitting a few rows away with his wife, Sharon. On a good day, Ozzy was not coherent. As they crossed the Atlantic, he grew less so. Good to have you aboard. Well, are we aboard? It's like a, it's like a flying madhouse. I don't know what the pilot's doing up there, but I hope it's an automatic pilot. At one point, I had to use the restroom. All of a sudden, I hear this pounding, pounding, pounding on the door. I'm like, I'm 
in here. Someone's in here. I'm finishing up. And the door breaks down. And it's Ozzy. He's like, I have to pee. And he, he, he literally, Broke like, I pull the... up my pants and I, like, <laughs> Pete, you cannot believe that he broke down the bathroom door because he had to, I mean, it was I mean, nightmare. it's everybody's nightmare that you'd be in the airplane bathroom and somebody would break in the door, but for it to turn out to be Ozzy Osbourne. I remember you came back and you thought, I thought the plane was going down. In London, the plane touched down long enough to pick up the Scorpions. Well, I think it's a great trip. I mean, this is like a big party, you know, with all the bands. This is Klaus and Matthias Jabs on the plane. It's always a good reason to play anywhere, but this, uh, this time it's going to be a charity situation, and we are happy to be part of it and help out wherever we can. This was a crazy time to be landing in Moscow. The country was starting to open up under the leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev. But there were also powerful elements within the Kremlin and in Russian society in general that were fiercely resistant to change and wanted to see an authoritarian crackdown. The whole Soviet Union felt like it was teetering on the brink and there was chaos. It wasn't always clear who was in charge. Doc McGee had been negotiating with the Kremlin for a year, but he still didn't have all the necessary permissions for the festival. Even after this plane full of rockers took off, Doc wasn't 100% sure that it would be allowed to land in Russia. He also thought maybe they would be allowed to land, and then all the bands would be arrested. But as he said, only half-jokingly, you couldn't buy that kind of publicity. After the break, the magic bus lands in Moscow. As the plane entered Soviet airspace, tensions were high. Here's Pete and Carol again from MTV. People were just on edge because Russia was scary. You know, when you think about what you know about travel today and how the Internet has changed everything, we really didn't have a sense of nobody had nobody been. Had. Just monumental. Snake Sabo was freaking out. And I was like, holy shit, man, we're going to friggin' Russia. Enemy territory. Less than a decade earlier, the United States had boycotted the 1980 Olympics and the Soviet Union. In 84, the Soviets boycotted the Olympics in L.A. How do we get from there to here where you're going to have Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Scorpions, Cinderella come over to Russia to play in a stadium two days? That's impossible in my young brain. To everyone's relief and surprise, the plane was permitted to land. You know, when we landed, we never showed our passports. Really? Never asked to identify ourselves. How's that possible? I, I have no idea. It, it was really bizarre. We sat on the runway for a short period of time, and they said, we have to deal with, you know, clearance and customs. And they came on and they said, actually, everybody, just, you're just going to walk off and walk into the press conference. At the airport, Doc McGee lined up his rockers behind a long table like a panel of senators. Bon Jovi, in sunglasses and a tasseled hat, said that they had come as emissaries of rock and roll. Doc said the message of this concert would be a little different than it was at Woodstock 20 years ago. This time, it would be to help the awareness of drugs and alcohol around the world. The bands were whisked into buses and cars and made their way to the Hotel Ukraine, a towering neoclassical fortress. The building had originally been commissioned by Stalin himself. It's huge. You can see it for miles. And it loomed over the city on a picturesque bend in the Moskva River. 
So there's a number of buildings that look like that in Moscow. Uh-huh. From what we were told, they were built to make the people feel small. This is Scotty Hill, who also plays guitar for Skid Row. And at one point, I was running around with Randy Castillo, who was the drummer for Ozzy Osbourne. He's not, he's not with us anymore, but running around the hotel, raising hell. I was like, Let, let's, let's find the top of this place, man. So we hopped in a stairwell and started our way up. Like a pair of urban explorers, they climbed to the deserted upper reaches of the hotel. And we wound up on one of those balconies with those big archways, and the view was just incredible, man. We're like, this is awesome. Let's keep going. As they rose higher and higher, the stairwells got more narrow until they reached the summit, the highest turret. And now there was just a ladder. Up through like a little hole in the next floor. Uh And finally found our way to that bell tower that you see at the very top. Yeah. And there we are, up in this tiny room, the size of a bathroom, and it's all broken glass on the floor, and four or five little round windows, and the wind was coming through, and we're just looking out over the city, 600 feet above the ground. We're like, we're the first Americans here. No Americans been in this place. Here we are, the man on the moon. The bands also got out into the city, strolling Moscow's big avenues, talking to people. They were shocked and bemused by the spectacle of Russians waiting in line. It's a beautiful country, it really is. It's just the people in it are so miserable, I mean. This is Ozzy. I've got nothing. What, what it does make me, me appreciate is, is what, what we have in the West. I mean, that, that you can't get toilet paper here, you can't get toothbrushes here, you can't buy soap. I saw a, a great big line of... Uh, people yesterday as we were driving for a cabbage, you know. I mean, that's ridiculous. It was as if the USSR was conforming to all the stereotypes that they'd grown up with. In fact, some of the bands were so in your face with the cultural superiority that I felt like if this were a cultural diplomacy mission, like the American tours of Louis Armstrong or Nina Simone, it might backfire. It's hard not to envy someone who won't shut up about all the things he's got that you don't, but it's also hard to like him. Even so, most people on the streets in Moscow didn't seem all that repulsed by the douchiness of the bands. It was more that they were curious about this cohort of rowdy aliens with leather pants and feathered hair who'd suddenly descended on their streets. The Scorpions, who'd been to Leningrad the year before, were more gracious. Klaus had a balalaika. Fan gave me this uh, balalaika as a present. Original balalaika, 20 years old. Let me hear your balalaika ringing out. Come and keep your comrade warm. He and some of the other rockers sat in a public park and jammed. Doc McGee didn't have time for sightseeing. He was running around, meeting with people. One minute you'd see him, the next he would disappear. As the impresario behind this whole bonkers spectacle, he was busy making sure nobody got arrested. He was making sure everything runs properly. He was keeping the bands happy. This is Scotty Hill from Skid Row again. He was dealing with the press and all that. As if the logistics weren't complex enough by themselves, Doc had a personality issue to contend with. The members of one of his biggest bands, Motley Crue, had just gotten out of rehab. They'd had to abruptly cancel their earlier tour in order to go to rehab. So the Moscow Festival would be something of a comeback. But because the Motley Crue guys were on the wagon, they were also, understandably, a little edgy. And the other bands were just debauching with abandon. It's not like they were sensitive to this dynamic. Adding to this tension, the members of Motley Crue were feeling a bit insecure about their position in the roster of Doc McGee's affections. 
They were Doc's original big act, but now here, all of a sudden, was Bon Jovi, this pretty boy from New Jersey with movie star charisma and a sensibility that was more avowedly poppy. His band was having incredible success with songs like Living on a Prayer. And I'll Be There For You. So there was a little anxiety among the crew over who precisely was the headliner of this festival. During their free time in Moscow, the Motley guys seemed to spend a lot of time accosting random Russians and demanding to know whether they had ever heard of Motley Crue. Here's Tommy Lee in a Moscow market. Say, Motley Crue. Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee. Motley Crue. You know who Motley Crue is? See? He knows. He knows. It's funny, these guys all cultivated this swaggering, vodka-swigging persona. But underneath, they had this almost adolescent insecurity. So I'm going to just tell everything to yeah, you, tell, tell. and I'll just give, give it all to okay, the, to the intelligence. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the, the joke is that we're intelligence? Yeah. Russian joke. This is Dmitry. He's in his late 40s. And he meets up with me, along with a translator, on a sunny, frigid day at the giant statue of Lenin that still stands outside Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow. In 1989, Dmitry was 17, and he scored tickets to the Moscow Music Peace Festival. Yeah, it was like <laughs> word to mouth all over Russia. Oh, really? Yeah, the yeah. festival. People yeah. knew about it. Yes, yes, it was the first such uh, like big, big event. Big. Uh-huh. I was an amateur drummer, and of course it was interesting to me to, to come here to look at the Western bands. Dmitry lived in Novograd, so it took him 10 hours on the train. He said that the whole train going from Novgorod to Moscow was full of uh, music fans. Uh, crazy crazy train. Train. It was a crazy train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He can only compare the experience to the song Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. And Osbourne yeah. was singing this song. And Ozzy here. was singing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dmitry has long, bright blonde hair, and I can see his face light up with excitement as he talks about the experience of entering the stadium. As he conjures the music, his hands start moving, miming the drum beats. The concert kicked off with a Russian physician greeting the crowd and saying, as a doctor, I would like to thank the outstanding musicians who chose as their slogan, no alcohol, no drugs. The stadium was packed to its 75,000-seat capacity. Young Russian fans screamed and danced. They did their best to sing along with the words, but so many of these bands were completely new to them that they mostly had to fake it. The authorities were sufficiently worried that there was a big phalanx of military guards there to make sure the crowd didn't get out of control. They were ready to go to the audience and to stop everything. Here's Stas Naman, who organized the concert with Doc. We had many military people there, not only police. He was worried they might just stop the concert. Stop the concert? I mean, it's a scandal. But he managed to placate the riot police, and the show went on. When the Scorpions took the stage, the crowd roared in anticipation. Scorpions were the most popular that moment in Russia.
The Scorpions had been playing together since before some of the other rockers were born. A few of the young guys made fun of them. Yay, Scorpions! We are yeah. Scorpions! No, we're not. We're Skid Row. I'm Sebastian. That's Sebastian Bach, imitating Klaus Meine on MTV. But for many, the Scorps were a role model, a band that had figured out how to survive, to stay together, to keep touring and recording year in, year out. Bon Jovi had even opened for the Scorpions back in 1984. And if you were a heavy metal kid, man, you knew the Scorpions. This is Scotty Hill. They just sounded so incredible. It was like just a big German engine. Sounds massive. These guys are they're on a different level. Klaus took the stage in a black leather ship captain's hat with a long red ribbon tied around the brim. He seized the mic and did a series of karate kicks while belting out Big City Nights. For Dimitri, the fan from Novigrad, the concert was life-changing. It opened his eyes to what music could do. It was a feeling of absolute freedom. Motley Crue seemed to hold it together and played a very tight set. It looked like it might be the comeback they'd been hoping for. But when Bon Jovi took the stage at the end of the evening, everyone was in for a big surprise. I think some pyro went off during John Bon Jovi's set. If you were a stadium act in 1989, a pyrotechnic display was the thing to have. Bands were always looking to one-up each other, and this became a way to do it. Who had the bigger pyro display? It was actually pretty crazy, this devotion to detonating mega fireworks at crowded concerts. In a few tragic cases, it ended up leading to injuries, even deaths. So with all these bands in Moscow, Doc McGee had issued a decree that there would be no pyro for anybody because he didn't want the bands competing, literally, over who could start the bigger fire. And besides, he didn't want to seem to be playing favorites. But then, when it came time for the finale, John Bon Jovi appeared on the stadium floor dressed in a red army cap and greatcoat, and he made his way through the crowd to the stage, like Moses parting the waters. And then suddenly, mysteriously, the stadium erupted in fireworks. <laughs> it was a big scandal because they agreed without fireworks. Snake Sabo was backstage when it happened. I had heard Tommy coming down the ramp, fuck you, Doc McGee, fuck you. I'm like, oh shit. And somebody said Tommy just punched Doc in the back of the head. Then Snake saw Tommy, who had managed to remain sober up to that moment, grab a bottle of vodka and start drinking. Well, rock and roll, you know, all the emotional guys. Motley Crue fired Doc McGee that day. They got on an airplane and left the festival early. Apart from the pyro scandal, the Music Peace Festival was a colossal success. It was one of the biggest pay-per-view events of the decade. It's one of those spectacles that everyone who was there talks about with a kind of whimsical reverie, as if they're not completely sure it wasn't all some elaborate dream. I did bring the... the this is... This is we the, both have this. Yes, this is, this is amazing. This is the concert... The tour jacket. The tour Get jacket. out of here. It's a leather biker jacket with one sleeve that's an American flag and another sleeve that's a Russian flag and a big skull and crossbones. 
you, you should put that on eBay. It'll fetch a fetch a pretty yeah. Thing. Not doing that t- from me. I don't know why. I'm not Those a saver of things. Those are tickets. Wow, you really saved everything. He's I, unbelievable. I, I'm not a big saver either. Carol and Pete had traveled the world with MTV, but in Moscow they saw something completely new. A year earlier, the Scorpions had been forbidden by the government to play in Moscow. But now, here was this wild, open-air, two-day rock festival. This is the sort of thing that, as an American, it can be easy to lose sight of. But when I watched a VHS tape of the concert recently, I could see just the total euphoria of the young Russians at this concert. It's not just that they're having fun, the way you or I might at a concert. It's that this is new and amazing. It's this deeper sense of release and communion You can see it in their faces. It's blowing their minds. When somebody sees something that they've never seen before, you can't unsee it. And once you get a taste of it, you can't go back. Klaus Meine felt the same way. He stood on the lip of that big stage, looking out at tens of thousands of fans, young Russians who'd grown up without rock and roll. And he felt like something was changing in the world, something profound, and he was witnessing it. Or so the story goes, anyway. The Russian youth are hungry for rock and roll, Klaus told an interviewer. When he stood there on the stage at Lenin Stadium, before the band's encore, and cried out to the audience, Moscow, do you want more? There was a sense in which he wasn't just asking if they wanted another song from the Scorpions. He was asking if they wanted more from their country, from their political system, in their lives. Before they left Moscow, a bunch of the bands took a boat cruise one evening on the Moskva River. They went to Gorky Park, where the Hard Rock Cafe had catered a cookout. This is Klaus in Moscow, describing his experience of the festival. It's like playing in front of a merchant audience. It's so fresh and feels so good. People are so excited. Klaus was so overcome by this experience of playing for a virgin audience, by the concert and the river cruise and the political transition that seemed poised to sweep Europe, that after the festival, he wrote a new song. Follow the Moscow down to Gonky Park, listening to the wind of change. They wrote a song, Wind of Change, because of this. And that's why it's down to Gorky Park. So it was inspired by this place. Klaus had never seemed to be an especially political person. The band's songs didn't dwell on geopolitics. The Scorpions' most famous album up to that point was called Virgin Killer. They weren't making protest music. Another weird thing, too, Klaus wasn't really a songwriter. He didn't write music. Almost all of the Scorpions' songs were written by the guitarist, Rudolf Schenker. Up to this point, I very rarely wrote music. I focused more or less all those years on lyrics, Klaus told an interviewer. But with Wind of Change, I presented the whole song to the band. The words and the melody and the whole structure of the song came out pretty quickly, Klaus went on to say. And the beginning melody, I guess, I just whistled my way through it because, I mean, I play guitar, but I'm not a lead guitarist. So I was just whistling, and it went down pretty cool. When it came time to produce their new album, the band decided, for the first time in their career, to record the album not in Europe, but in the United States, at a studio in Los Angeles. Once they'd recorded Wind of Change in English, they sent it to Stas Naman back in Russia. I felt it's a hit. Very simple, but simple is not doesn't mean bad. Yeah, it's very unusual. Yeah, when in rock band somebody's whistling, 
It's not rock style a little bit. And they called me and said, we wrote a song and we want to ask you to write Russian lyrics because we want to record it in Russian also. They ended up releasing the Russian version, an unusual move for a German band singing in English, but they wanted people in Russia to understand the words. Years later, Stas Naman played the Russian version for Mikhail Gorbachev, who had tried to work within the Soviet system to bring about more openness and change. And Gorbachev came to see us, and we played Wind of Change in our version in Russian, and he was crying. And you know, when you guys first approached me, I saw the subject line on the email, you know, like metal to Moscow or something. And I'm like, this email could not possibly be about that story. <laughs> this is Deb Wilker. She's a music journalist. Back in 1989, she was the pop music reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. I was indeed a full-time pop music writer at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. We also had a full-time classical music writer. When Deb Wilker heard about the Moscow Festival, something about it didn't add up. I did start as a, quote, real news reporter. So when a press release would come in, I, I would always look at it with the same basics, who, what, where, why, and when, what is this about? And there were just so many holes in the story. So I remember thinking, this cannot be real. What made you think that? I was kind of in disbelief that if something as profound as a music festival, which was meant to bridge cultures, East and West, you know, behind the Iron Curtain and the Cold War and all of those issues, if we were going to do something so profound, why were we sending these rock bands? Like these rock bands in particular? Yeah, these bands in particular. I felt at the moment almost kind of like a little bit of shame. Uh, you know, here we were in this country which was known for producing great entertainment. You know, we were the home of Hollywood. This is where all the greatest stuff got made. Could we not do any better? It, it just seemed, it seemed kind of like a Fellini movie. This can't be real. Deb wrote an indignant column for the Sun Sentinel. Why not send Madonna or Prince or Michael Jackson or George Michael or R.E.M. or Tina Turner or Bruce Springsteen or Whitney Houston, she wondered. Wouldn't they be better ambassadors of Western culture? Even Sting. She hated Sting. But why not send Sting? If you want to win a medal in skiing, uh, the United States would send its three best skiers. You want to represent yourself with the best that you can. To be fair, Deb was not a fan in general of the sort of light metal that the Scorpions and the other bands in Moscow epitomized. It was pretty guys playing pop tunes at crazy decibels with a lot of crunchy guitar and gigantic hair sequins and a lot of ridiculousness. When she looked at the roster, she developed a theory. And 
it was very easy to connect the dots. I'm like, what do all these bands have in common? Motley Crue, Scorpions, Bon Jovi, what was the other one? I don't remember. Skid Row. Skid Row, right. And, and they were all managed by the same guy. Doc McGee. Doc McGee. And there was something about it being Doc McGee who put together the concert and happened to represent all these bands that made Deb Wilker especially suspicious. You know, somebody made a deal. Somebody made a deal. The thing about the world of intelligence is, when you dig into it, you start to lose all faith that any given thing is what it first appears to be. When you think about the story of the festival and the scorpions and the song, doesn't it actually kind of not make any sense? What if the story I just told you about the Moscow Festival wasn't quite what I described? What if there were important missing pieces to the story of the festival and the scorpions and the origin story of Wind of Change that would make you understand all of these things differently? What if Doc McGee, the P.T. Barnum of heavy metal managers, wasn't quite who he appeared to be? This manager had been in trouble through the years for uh, drug smuggling. He'd been arrested a couple times. You don't have to be like Sherlock Holmes to figure out that some deal was made. And hey, rather than throwing this guy behind bars, can we possibly allow him to use his powers for good? Next time on Wind of Change, the real identity of Doc McGee. Doc had some connections down in Columbia, and he would receive a four-to-one return on his investment. That's one of the biggest individual loads I've ever heard of. He walks into one of the bedrooms, pulls open the bottom drawer. He said, that's a million dollars. <laughs> they don't like the king. They want to chop the fucking head off the king. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers, Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer, Michael Schender Auerbach. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold, and this episode featured St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of Urban Tromafoy. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jake Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, Josh Yaffa, Ksenia Barakovskaya, Vasily Kolotilov, Madi Sprankheiser, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Chifa Yadur, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Saiswis Skandaraja, Jonah Weiner, and Justina Gadzowska. Source material in this episode included archival footage from MTV and the Moscow Music Peace Festival. If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>